0: And so today, I'm going to be wrapping up this series called No Regrets. And so I have almost completed 56 rotations around the sun. And if I stood up and told you, stood here today and told you that I have no regrets, I think you would know that I'd be lying to you. There's a lot of things that I regret in my past, but I think there's a lot of things that I don't, that I have no regrets And I think the one that I can really stand up here and say is that I have no regrets for marrying my bride, Chris. None whatsoever. So I'm going to be talking about marriage. So what what qualifies me to stand up here and talk to you guys about marriage? And so I think probably the biggest qualification that I have is on June the 1st of 1991 at the Salt Lake Christian Church in front of a packed house, Of about 25 people, I married my wife, Chris. So I've been married for 31 years. 31 years. Newlywed. Newlywed, exactly. My my wife married me, and and uh, she's been married to me for 31 years. I don't know how many of those years she's been fed up, but I know that she has enjoyed our marriage, as best I can tell. And so we've been blessed over the years. And I'm going to tell you, we've had some trials, we've had some rough patches, we've had some hard times, and you know, that, that just goes with the territory, but, but I really do believe that God ordained us to be together, to be partners in this life that he gave us. Uh, my wife is God's gift to me, and I can tell you that I am my wife's prize, although sometimes she probably wonders what contest in Haiti she won. But I do believe that she th- feels the same way that I do, that we are a match and that we were brought together by God, that it wasn't an accident. And I'll tell you, having a, having a good marriage, having to be able to, st- to say that, that, that doesn't happen by accident either. We, we had to work at it. We continue to have to work at, at our marriage. And so it's worth, it's worth the trouble, folks. Keep, keep doing that if you, if you can uh, agree with that. So I want to answer, first of all, I have to get this out of the way. What, what is biblical marriage? What does the Bible say about marriage? And that's a controversial topic these days. In our culture, that's controversial. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it, but we've got to get this out of the way. Because there is a, a, an image that marriage is supposed to reflect. It's supposed to reflect the image of God. That's what the Bible says tells us. In Genesis chapter 1, it says that that God created mankind in the image of God. He created them. He made one man and he made one woman. And so marriage that reflects and mirrors the image of God, excuse me, is between one man and one woman. And so for folks who desire to live out God's will, That's what God calls us to do. That's the union that God calls us to engage in. And so we should endeavor to live that way. But I want to tell you something. It is not incumbent upon Christians. It is not incumbent upon us, excuse me, to try and apply that to our culture around us. It is not incumbent upon us to try to apply God's rules to people that don't believe what we believe. Good luck with doing that anyway. There's a lot, around, a lot of people around us that, that struggle with different things. There's people that struggle with lustful thoughts, with pornography. Uh, there's some people that don't believe in, in monogamy. They, they, they believe in multiple partners. There are people that have same-sex attractions. And so there are a lot of people that suffer from a lot of different things. And in my opinion, the answer to that is not legislation. It's not social justice. There's only one answer to that, and it's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer to all those things that tempt us and all those struggles that we have. And so if if you're here, maybe you don't believe in that, maybe you're struggling with different things, please don't be judged by these words that I'm sharing with you from the Bible. It's not my job to change you. It's not my job to change your orientation. It's not my job to judge you. But it is my job to tell you about Jesus Christ. It is our job to spread the gospel. No matter what condition you're in, no matter where you are, Jesus calls you right where you are, and he's calling you. And so what I can tell you is if you're struggling with this, if there's things that you don't agree with, I would just say this, try out Jesus. Try him on for size. So what is biblical marriage? Biblical marriage, first and foremost, is sacrificial. We see in the book of Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall asleep and do a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs... And then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And they become one flesh. And so this is the picture of creation. And so, first we see that God created light, and He called it He called it good. Then He created the land and the sea, and He claimed it to be good. Then He created all the plant life, all the vegetation, and He said that's good. He created day and night, good. Created the sea creatures, good. The land animals called it good. He created man, and then He looked at all that He had done and said, "This is good." But then He looked at Adam. Alone, And he said, wait a minute, this ain't good. And so he, he, he put Adam to sleep. It says then, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper for him. He, he put Adam to sleep. He took this rib and he made woman. And, and in the beginning, God took from man. And so he, he divided uh, man. He made man and woman, two individuals from one. And so marriage is this symbolic reunion of the, of the two parts that become one. That's just such a beautiful picture of God's image of marriage. It's sacrificial. So I've had some people ask me, as, as a Christian, I'm single, am I required to be married as a Christian? And I can honestly say that I don't see anything in the Bible that says we're required to be married, that we're required uh, to join in this, this holy matrimony. And maybe for some of you folks that are single want to stay that way, that's a relief for you. But the Bible really doesn't say we have to get married. But, but hold on a second. The Bible does say that it's God's plan that physical intimacy be limited to the institution of marriage. Which means that any other physical contact outside of that union of marriage is considered a sin. Paul said to the single people, he said, I say to the unmarried and the widows, it's good for them to remain as I am. See, because Paul was not married to a woman. I would say that Paul was married to the church. And so best I can tell, Paul uh, put his energy into two things. Tent making was so that he wouldn't be a burden to people and to building God's church. That's what he was married to. And so marriage isn't a biblical requirement, but it does have its challenges. Paul said as he continued talking to the Corinthians, he said, but if they do not have self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with desire. And so here Paul is reinforcing that singleness should come side by side with celibacy, that singleness requires celibacy because intimacy, again, outside of the bonds of marriage... Is not God's plan for our lives. And so marriage is sacrificial. It reflects the image of God. It's not a biblical requirement, but the intimacy that goes along with it should be limited to marriage. It's not much of a surprise for me to tell you that biblical marriage is under attack in our culture these days. It shouldn't be a surprise. That's just a fact it's under attack. The world minimizes the, this marriage. It ridicules celibacy. You know, when you look at these examples, and there are some. I know Lolo Jones, back uh, several years ago, as an Olympic hurdler. She was a beautiful young woman. She was set to win the gold medal and tripped on the last hurdle in the 800-meter hurdles. She was a world-class athlete, no doubt about it. And she was very popular at that time until... In an interview, she explained that she was saving herself for her husband, that she was celibate. It seems after that, the world kind of attacked her. They ridiculed her. They called her a liar because, gosh, that's not possible, is it? And so a lot of people even started questioning her her athletic ability, which was never in question before. And so the world attacked her for that. The world ridiculed her for that. Tim Tebow, we all know that story. The same way, Tim saved himself for his wife. And a lot of people argue that because of the Christian life that Tim Tebow lived out in the open, that he was actually ran out of the NFL despite his athletic ability. And so the world minimizes marriage, it minimizes this, this idea of celibacy this, this celibacy, this idea of biblical marriage. Folks like that are attacked mercilessly by the press in our culture today. All because these folks stated they were gonna wait for the right person. <clears throat> Do you know there are political interest groups that are actively lobbying to destroy the nuclear family? Meaning, you know, the, the model of a mother and a father raising children. They call it a lot of different things. They call it they, they, they look at it as a negative light. They spend a lot of money trying to to, to eliminate this this idea of a nuclear family. At a time, in my opinion, where children need the influence of a mother and father more than ever. And I'm going to make a statement that I couldn't have ever imagined I would have have probably said maybe 10, 15 years ago. But to live a biblical marriage in our world today requires courage. It requires courage. So the message that I'm supposed to be talking about is regrets, how we're not supposed to have any regrets. And so I I read a lot of articles. I thought about sharing some things some other people have said, but I decided I'm just going to pray. I'm going to let God give me some things to share with you of how we can avoid as married couples, even as single people, how we can avoid living a life without regrets. And so the things that I came up with, I came up with five things. The first one, because, you know, sometimes a sermon about marriage kind of eliminates people that aren't married, and and you're kind of sitting here alone. Well, I've got a message for those out there that are single. Maybe you're young and haven't married. Maybe you're in a transition in your life, uh, and and you're single, and you find yourself that way. So the first item is for you. Be equally yoked with the partner that you choose. Be equally yoked. Paul said, do not be mismatched with unbelievers for what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? If you're single out there, if that's where you find yourself, please listen to this. Make sure you find someone that has the same belief system that you do, that has the same belief system. Marriage shouldn't be a mission field in Christianity. Don't marry someone who doesn't believe hoping that you'll convert them. Because they could end up converting you. The Bible warns about that. You know, I know someone, a, a, a friend of mine, years ago, who, uh, as a married couple, they, uh, they were married, but then he became a believer. His wife was a believer in God, but didn't much believe in Jesus. And so the tension was pretty, was pretty thick throughout that marriage, not just between him and her, but also with the kids, because, see, the parents were pulling in two different directions. And this this man he finally he, he kinda set aside his journey in the church. And for a while I think he even set aside his 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 fever for Christ because it was just easier to live life. It made life simpler not to have that tension. I know that sounds like an extreme example, it's not a parable. It's a, it's a true story. It really did happen. So if you're committed to living a Christ-like life, I'm going to warn you, it's going to be challenging if you pair up someone that do, pair up with someone that doesn't have that same conviction. So be equally yoked. The second is related to this. Have the same destination in mind. You know, I was thinking about this, and I thought about this trip that I took in the fall. Uh, it was out west. I got invited to go teach some men at a, a wilderness backcountry conference, and um, and people were coming from all over the country. And so we, we all were coming different distances from different locations, different states, using different means of transportation. And so we were all, it, was, it looked like chaotic, but we all conversed on the same spot because we knew where we were going. We knew what our destination was. And so likewise, you need to make sure that the partner that you pick is headed in this, to the same destination that you are. Even if you're not at the same location on your journey, it's, it's, it's important that you have the same destination in mind. You know, when my wife and I met, I can honestly say we probably weren't at the same place spiritually, but we knew where we wanted to go. We knew we wanted to grow closer to Jesus. So over the years, we kind of pushed and pulled one another in the areas that we were maybe lagging behind. And I, I could say that today, you know, at, at this late state in our marriage, that I think we're pretty close to being at the same waypoint on that spiritual journey. And so the key is important. The key is to intend on arriving at the same place. <clears throat> the third item, don't bail out. Don't bail out. Times are going to be tough, but don't check out. You know, statistically, 50% of all couples in North America over time are going to, those couples are going to suffer a divorce. 50%, almost 17 out of 1,000 in in 2021 alone were divorced. And so the, the, the odds of you being divorced in our country are the same as flipping a coin. So why is that? So how do we stay married in face of those kind of odds? Well, here, here's the thing. There's two things. We have to give up on we. I'm sorry, we have to give up on me. I got that backwards. We have to give up on me, and we have to focus on we. If you enter a relationship, and, and all you're concerned about is what you can get out of it, when you don't get it, which you want, then you're going to want to check out. And so, if you can get rid of this attitude that it's all about me and it's about us, then you stand a chance of beating those odds. You stand a chance of not becoming a statistic. The fourth one is this just for emphasis when you commit, commit to commit. When you commit, be serious about it. Marriage is a covenant, and it's not just between you. Biblical marriage is not just between you and your spouse. It also includes God. You're making a covenant with God. It makes me think about the, the Abrahamic covenant. You see, God made this promise to Abraham. He promised him that his offspring would, be, would compete with the, the number of the stars in the sky. That would be the Jewish nation. And so he promised this to an elderly man with a wife who was way beyond her childbearing years. And so who could blame Abraham? Abram at the time, who could blame him for, for questioning that, for doubting that? And so he was confused by all this. And so we see this picture in the book of Genesis. This is chapter 15, some long verses, bear with me. It says, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur and from the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But, the Lord, but he said to the Lord, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? This is Abram. God said to him, bring me a heifer, bring me a goat, and bring me a ram and a turtle dove and some pigeons. And so Abram brought those and he, he killed them and he cut them in half. And it said, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell over Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon Abram. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in this land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, pointing towards the Jew the Jews in, in Egyptian conscription. And they'll be afflicted for four hundred years there. <clears throat> but as but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve on Egypt, and afterward they shall Come out with great possessions, and for you you will live to be a ripe old age. You will be buried at an old age, and they 'll come back here to the promised land in the fourth generation. And then it says this: when the sun had gone down, it was dark, and behold a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces that Abram had cut in half, and on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying. To your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates. talking about the promised land. And so God had made this promise to Abram. He couldn't make much sense out of what God was promising. And he was doubting all of it. But God this day, what I just read to you shows that God put his signature on the contract that he had made with Abram. See, because when folks of those days, when they would make a a contract or, or an oath... they would would take a heifer and they would kill it and they would cut it in half and then the parties would walk between the pieces. And it was symbolic of saying, may it happen to me what happened to this heifer if I break this oath. And so, Abram cut the pieces in half. Now, God didn't require that Abram walk through the pieces. God himself walked between the pieces. And so, God made that promise and he sealed his oath in blood for Abram. He, he demonstrated his commitment to him. And I think that that's the kind of oath that, that we should take when we marry. We take that oath with God. That's how seriously we need to take this institution of marriage. Now, I want to clarify, if you're planning a wedding, I wouldn't suggest that you, you know, kill a heifer and cut it in half that would get pretty weird but but I think that we need to take this commitment very seriously not just with our spouse but that we need to sign that covenant with God as well the last thing and I think the most important thing is if you want to have a marriage with no regrets then you should be disciples together that make disciples together we should be living out God's commission you know in the church Sometimes I really believe we get this backwards. Uh, sometimes we have this desire. We want to make your, your marriages better. And if we can just teach you how to have a better marriage, then maybe you'll be better disciples. And, you know, I don't subscribe to that order much anymore. See, I thoroughly believe that if we become better disciples together, if we do that as a team, as a partner in our marriages that I think will become, our marriages will thrive. You know, I know a lot of people, I know a lot of people that are unbelievers, people that aren't committed to their faith journey, that have wonderful marriages. There are a lot of atheists in this world that have blissful marriages. I mean, we can see that. And so just having a good marriage, if you have a, if you have a wonderful marriage, but you have no faith, then what do you have? What have you gained? And so to be, to, to have this wonderful marriage, if we want our marriages to thrive, I think a good place to start is to substantially live out the priorities of Jesus together, to do that together. And so what does it look like to live out the, the, uh, the, the priorities of Christ together? First of all, we need to be couples that are dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to be living Holy Spirit-driven lives and be doing that together you know Jesus in his humanity required the power of the Holy Spirit he claimed that without the Spirit he couldn't do what he did and and Jesus told his disciples he said you know it's good it's good before he ascended it's good that I go so that the counselor can come and so we've got something even more powerful than the physical presence of Jesus we have the Holy Spirit and we need to depend on him together and we also need to pray together We need to be seeking guidance through our prayer. We need to be doing it together. It's really hard to be at each other's throats if you're praying to God and doing that as a form of worship on a daily basis. We need to be obedient to God's will. We need to respond to Him. We need to be reading the Word daily together. Not just reading it, folks, but we need to be living it out And we don't need to miss an opportunity to worship God. Not just on Sunday morning when we sing songs, but in everything that we do. And finally, we need to nurture our relationships with our spouses. We need to nurture our relationships, and then we need to take this we that we become when that we're living in the Spirit, and we need to start uh, extrapolating that into, into a concern about other people, about people in your circles of concern. We need to be living out these priorities. If you want a marriage minus regrets, it's a marriage where two become one, substantially living out the priorities and the values of Jesus, and it's a union where both parties are pulling in the same direction, to live out the will of God. Folks, I believe that all starts, it all starts with the gospel. It's acknowledging that Jesus Christ was a man that walked on this earth a couple of thousand years ago. It's that he willingly made his way to Jerusalem, three and a half years of ministry, with all these disciples following along, he made his way to that common quarry just outside the gates on, on the road to Damascus, to that, to that hill where he willingly laid his life down on the cross. He did that, dying a death that we deserved. And that's a wonderful thing. And we put a lot of emphasis on the death of Jesus, how he took our place. But the most amazing thing happened three days later when that broken body was risen by the power of the Holy Spirit, showing us that we don't have to die that permanent death. And all we have to do to achieve that is accept him, to surrender the me and accept him as our Lord and our Savior. And then we start that journey of trying to live a life that exemplifies his if you're here today and you haven't accepted that promise, if if you aren't, aren't secure in your salvation, you know today is a wonderful day to change that. If you want to talk about that, I'm going to be up front. Randy's going to be up front. If you're here and and maybe you're struggling with this marriage thing that's going on, and and you just want to pray, please come forward and do that as well. You know, I don't want to make to make to make it sound like that you're only going to be able to access God by having me pray for you. We know that that curtain was torn from top to bottom. We all have direct access in it. But look at this space up here. There's a lot of room for people to come forward and pray. Prayer is an act of worship. It's as important as an act of worship it is to sing. And so I want to invite you all, just come up. Whether I'm praying with you or not, let's come up and pray together today. I'd love to see this space filled up every Sunday morning with people that are just here to talk to God. And so I'm going to invite you to do that while we're singing this last song. Let me pray as we go into this time of worship. But I really want to invite you all to come forward and let's just be happy to talk to our Father today. Whether it's our problems, our praises, whatever it is, let's come up and talk to Him. Heavenly Father... We thank you for a day like today where we can come together, this day that's set aside for this purpose. God, I pray that we would take this day, that this this excitement to worship you, to pray with you, to pray for one another. I hope that we would take this attitude out into the world with us as we go. I pray for those folks that are single that that may be thinking about this, this union. And I pray that they would take it uh, so seriously that they would they would see that as a covenant with you. I pray for those married couples that go through this daily grind. I pray that they would just spend their time just trying to, to just better honor and worship you. God, we love you. We offer our prayers today in your son's holy name. Amen.